Welcome to the podcast of Grandview Baptist Church in Anchorage, Alaska. This episode contains a sermon from March 13th by Pastor Randy, titled, Nehemiah, Build Back Your Faith, Part 7. So for the past several weeks, we've been going through the book of Nehemiah, and we've been looking at the revival that took place under Nehemiah in order to encourage our own. We saw what Nehemiah went through that brought him and his people to revival. He went through brokenness, prayer. He went through a time of unity and perseverance. But now there's one more characteristic. There's one more thing that, that Nehemiah is, is going to have that's going to put him between God and revival. And that's integrity. So for that, we're looking at chapter 5. In Nehemiah. Now, let me tell you a little bit about chapter five. It's a little bit unusual because there's this conflict that's going on. And this conflict is not like what we've seen conflict in the earlier chapters. It's not between the Jews and all these people on the outskirts of the city, all these little warlords that surrounding them. It's between the brethren. It's one thing when you have a conflict with people out there. It's a different thing when you've got a conflict going on amongst yourselves. And so verses one through five kind of describes the problem for us. So let's read verses one through five of chapter five. There was a widespread outcry from the people and their wives against their Jewish countrymen. Some were saying, we, our sons and our daughters are numerous. Let us get grain so that we can eat and live. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, vineyards, and homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have borrowed money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. We and our children are just like our countrymen and their children, yet we are subjecting our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters are already enslaved, but we are powerless because of our, our fields and vineyards belong to others. So right away, he's addressing three different groups of people. And we know this because in verse two, he starts out and says some. In verse three, he says, and there were others. And in verse four, he says, there were still others. And so these three groups of people, the first group, they're in poverty and they can't eat. They don't have anything to eat because they're so poor. The second group, they mortgage their land that they own in order to be able to eat. The third group, they can't, pay high they can't pay the high taxes. And so they're really struggling. You know, what are they going to do? Uh, and, and, and all this, the mortgaging, the high taxes, all this is being put upon them by their fellow countrymen. No wonder they're crying out. And what this does is this, this gives the temptation to stop the work on the wall. We're in debt. We can't feed ourselves. We can't eat. The picture of what's going on is that right now there's famine and there's high taxes. And some people mortgage their fields to be able to eat, but then they still couldn't pay their mortgage. And so their land got taken away from them. Then other people sold their own kids into slavery to be able to eat. I know that may be tempting for some of you sometime, but it's really, but, but that's what they did. 
And now they still can't, even that, that, that money gets used up and they still can't eat. And all this is being put upon them by their fellow countrymen. So we're saying, God, we, we can't eat. Or to Nehemiah, we can't eat. We're, we're poor. We, and we're mortgaged everything. We even had to sell our kids. We can't really work on the wall. But Nehemiah has a different perspective. Nehemiah says the reason you're in this condition is because you left God in the first place. If you hadn't left God, the poor would be taken care of. If you hadn't left God, you wouldn't be paying these high taxes. If you hadn't left God, you wouldn't be a debtor type community. And so Nehemiah is saying, I know you're tempted to say, okay, let's forget about the wall and let's worry about what's going on right now. But your whole problem is because you haven't been pursuing God and going in the direction God wants you to. You, you abandon that now. You abandon what God wants you to do in building this wall and things are just going to fall apart. You don't do that. That's not the way you fix things is by leaving God. The way you fix things is by leaning into God, by pursuing God. Okay, so that's what's going on. And then in verse six, I became extremely angry when I heard their outcry and these complaints. After seriously considering the matter, I accused the nobles and officials saying to them, each of you is charging his countrymen interest. So he's upset. Why? Because the Old Testament specifically says you don't charge interest to a fellow Jew. Don't do that. And that's what they're doing. So he's angry. And then we continue. He says, so I called a large assembly against him. First, he's accusing them, right? He's going to these nobles. Then he called a large assembly against them and said, we have done our best to buy back our Jewish countrymen who were sold to foreigners. But now you sell your own countrymen and we have to buy them back. They remained silent and could not say a word. So first he goes to them privately. Then he goes to them publicly. And he says, look, we already had to buy our fellow countrymen back once. You're going to make us do it again? We already had to buy them back from sinners. Now we have to buy them back from saints? And this is so effective. This hits them so square in the face. They don't have anything to say. They know that they've been exposed. They've been caught. And there's nothing they can say. Nehemiah has hit them right in reality where it's at. Then I said, what you're doing isn't right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God and not invite the reproach of our foreign enemies? See, what they're doing is brought a reproach against God because people are looking at the nation and they go, they treat their own people worse than the enemies treat them. And so it's brought a reproach against God because this is supposed to be God's people. Look how they treat each other. Even I, as well as my brothers and my servants, have been lending them money and grain. Please let us stop charging this interest. Return their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses to them immediately, along with the percentage of the money, grain, new wine, and fresh oil that you have been assessing to them. So Nehemiah says, you give them back what you took with them with interest. Don't just say, I'm sorry, make it right. They responded, we will return these things and require nothing more from them. We will do as you say. So I summoned a priest and made everyone take an oath to do this. I also shook the folds of my robe and said, may God likewise shake from his house and property everyone who doesn't keep this promise. May he be shaken out and have nothing. The whole assembly said, amen. And they praised the Lord. Then the people did as they had promised. 
So Nehemiah says, you're going to do this? All right, I want you to take an oath. You sign your name out in front of everybody. See, we live in a day where we have no problem signing a pledge to, to buy a car, signing a pledge to buy a house. But when it comes to commitment to God, we don't want to be tied down. We don't want to be backed into a corner. We want to make it as easy to get out of as possible. But Nehemiah says, no, you're going to come out in public. I'm just going to take your word. You're going to, you're going to come out in public and you're going to sign your name to this. And then what Nehemiah does next, he talks about his own governorship. He says this, furthermore, from the day King Artaxerxes appointed me to be their governor in the land of Judah from the 20th year until his 32nd year, 12 years, I and my associates never ate from the food allotted to the governor. The governors who preceded me had heavily burdened the people, taking from them food and wine as well as a pound of silver. Their subordinates also oppressed the people, but because of the fear of God, I did do this. Instead, I devoted myself to the construction of this wall and all my subordinates who gathered there for the work. We didn't buy any land. Every day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some fowl were prepared for me, and abundance of all kinds of wine were provided every 10 days. But I didn't demand the food allotted to the governor because the burden of the people was so heavy. So, what Nehemiah is saying is look, I didn't come here and start building a Nehemiah Corporation. I didn't come here to get rich off you guys. Now, the other people before me, they did that. It was their, I mean, they were, it was okay to do that. This is what it was expected of them and a lot of them do. They did that. They, they ruled over you and it was with a heavy hand and they took things from you. But I didn't do that. I wasn't like the Sandbows and Tobiah, which are really kind of like warlords. I wasn't like them at all. Instead, I fed 150 people every day out of my own pocket. And me and my servants worked on the wall. All right. You just read chapter five. Now here's what's going on. Nehemiah is contrasting the lack of integrity of these wealthy Jewish leaders to his integrity. And he's saying, there's a big difference between how they behaved and the way I have been behaving. So what we're going to talk about today, because this is, as we've been going through this book, I've been saying we're not just going to talk about what happened. We're going to talk about what's behind what happened. And what's behind what happened in this chapter five is integrity. So there's some things I want you to know about integrity. So let's go through about four of these things real quick. Number one, integrity is not rooted in your public life. It's revealed there. Number two, integrity is not rooted in your professional life. It's only reinforced there. And number three, integrity is not rooted in your personal life. It is only reflected there. Now we're going to talk about where integrity is rooted in a few minutes. But right now I want to start off with a definition of integrity. And here's our definition. Integrity is the resolve and the courage to do the right, uh, to do the right thing. Do the right, we're missing the thing there. To do the right thing just because it's the right thing. Even when it costs you, and especially when it costs you. When it costs you financially, when it costs you relationally, when it costs you reputation, you're still committed to do the right thing. 
And one more thing. When we sacrifice our integrity, we close the door on opportunity. I want you to understand this. So this is what we're going to talk about in the next few minutes. The illustration is in Daniel. You remember when Daniel and his three friends first arrived in Babylon. They're captives. They're slaves. But they're being trained to work in the government. Because in that day, their type of slavery was different from our colonial slavery. Their type of slavery is you let your slave become the best they can be. You let them rise up and do the best they can because you're better off for that. And so they're, they're, they're teaching Daniel and, and his three friends Babylonian language. They had no problem with that. The, the Babylonian names, they had no problem with that. Babylonian education, they're fine with that. They're okay. And they're ready to become slaves to the king and rise up and, 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 and in their places in government and, and help make everything happen. But there's one thing that they're required to do, they refuse to do, and that's eat the king's food. We don't want to eat that. That's forbidden for us to eat. They draw the line there. And they said, no, we're not going to, uh, to be involved in eating that food. And so what happens is that Daniel says, we're not going to do this. And what he does, he's placed himself in the hands of God. And there's no promise that God's going to intervene. He is willing to do the right thing because it's the right thing with no promise that God's going to intervene. For him, it's worth the risk to do that. For Daniel, it's worth the risk to follow his conscience, to do the right thing just because it's the right thing to do. See, you go through the book of Daniel, we see where this happened time and time again. Now, fast forward 55 years later. Now, the Persians have overcome, have taken the place of the Babylonians. And now Darius is king. And Darius is getting ready to restructure the way his government is put together on the top levels. And he's getting ready to take Daniel and put him above everything in the Persian kingdom. But the problem is there's other people in the top leadership and they're jealous that Daniel's going to get the top spot. And so what they do, they begin looking for dirt to dig up on Daniel. So see, he can't be the top spot. Look at this. And they try to dig, 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 but they can't find anything. They, they, can't, they can't find any way that he's neglected anything. They can't find any way that he's been corrupt. How would you like that to be said of you? That people dug and dug and dug into your background and they couldn't find anything. And the mistakes you did make, you got them out there in the open and you dealt with them. So there's no traction there for anybody to accuse you of that because you got it out there and you dealt with it. Isn't that the type of people you want in your family? Isn't that the type of people you want to work with and work for? Isn't that what you want in your government? Is that type of integrity that nobody can find anything? So what do they do since they can't find anything? They go to King Darius and they say, King Darius, we want you to make this decree. For the next 30 days, nobody can pray to any God but you. They appeal to his ego. 
we're going to have the 30 days of Darius. And it's going to be great. There's going to be parades, floats, music, T-shirts, bobbleheads. We're going to even throw in an execution or two. It's going to be great. Because see, this is a very international city. People have come in from all parts of the world being conquered and they all have their own gods and they're fine with everybody having their own gods. You just include Darius among them, but they're saying for the next 30 days, everybody has to put their own God on pause and say, we're just going to pray to Darius because they knew two things. Daniel is not praying to Darius and he's not going to stop praying to his God. And if you grew up in church, hearing this story, Sun Tzu class and everything else, the focus comes on what's coming next. That's where everybody goes to, what comes next. But if you just stop right there and you go to what comes next, you miss the whole point of the story. The point of the story is not what comes next. The point of the story is what's already happened. See, if Daniel was concerned about the outcome of his decisions, he would have made a different decision. But that's not what he's concerned about. He's concerned about doing the right thing just because it's the right thing and leaving the consequences up to God. His concern is staying true to his conscience. His concern is being faithful to God. His concern is not letting anything get between him and God. It's, it's, it's being faithful and doing the right thing. And that was the win for Daniel. If, if the story stopped there, if nothing else happened, Daniel won right there at that point because he's committed to doing the right thing just because it's the right thing. He's already won, even if nothing else happens. So here's the, the thing I want you to see. Daniel's primary concern was not the outcome of his decision. His primary concern was doing what he knew God wanted him to do and trusting God with the outcome. Now look, there was no guarantee of the outcome. God did not give Daniel any guarantee on what would happen. Guess what? You don't have any guarantees either. Whenever you hear, you just do the right thing, you pray and you trust God and everything's going to be just fine, that's a lie. And when you get down to it, that's the prosperity gospel, is it not? If you do this, this, and this, and this, God's going to bless you with this. And maybe some of you were in a church that taught you that, and you did this, this, and this, and God didn't come through with you, so you left the faith. Listen, I just want you to know those people were lying to you. There is no guarantees. There is none. It didn't happen that way with Daniel and it won't happen that way with you. See, they come up with a version of Christianity they thought you wanted to hear. But what I want you to understand uh, here in this case is that the point of the story isn't the miracle that takes place in the lion's den. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is the character of a man who stood on his convictions, who stood with integrity and God may intervene, God may not. But for Daniel, for as he's concerned, he's already won. God, you don't owe me anything. I'm going to live the way that you want me to live. No matter what happens, you don't owe me anything. I'm good without any guarantees at all. 
That's how Daniel lived his life. Doing the right thing, not concerned about the outcomes. So here's the question for you this morning. What is your win? What is it? For Daniel, it was doing the right thing just because it's the right thing with no guarantee of the outcomes. That was it. That was it for Daniel. Doing what God wanted him to do. Because people who would sacrifice their integrity for a win for something else, that's a lose-lose situation. Because here, you don't know the outcomes. You do not control the outcomes of your decisions. You're not even good at predicting the outcomes. Nebuchadnezzar thought he controlled the outcomes. The next upstart, Belshazzar, thought he controlled the outcomes. Darius thought he could control the outcomes. So let me give you another question. When you do the right thing, will God intervene and rescue you? Will God shut the mouths of lions for you? Will he? Let me give you a better question. Does it matter? If your integrity depends upon God arranging outcomes from you, if your integrity depends on living life happily ever after, that's not integrity. That's something else. If the outcome of a decision matters more to you than doing the will of your heavenly father, you're not a follower, you're a user. That was Judas. He didn't like the way things were going with Jesus and so he flipped and he sacrificed his integrity. Now he got paid for it, 30 pieces of silver. And even if he hadn't have gone out and hanged himself, it was still a lose-lose situation. Jesus, you keep talking about going to Jerusalem and you know they don't like you there, but you say you're going to die, you're going to be crucified and you're going to die. Jesus, that's a lose. Jesus says, no, it's not. It's not a lose, that's a win. Because when I do what my Heavenly Father wants me to do, when I place myself in His hands and I do His will, that's a win. I'll leave the outcome to Him. So that night in the garden where He says, Father, not my will, but your will be done, that was the win right there. He'd already won. Because He says, I'm going to do the right thing and put myself in God's hands. That was the win. That was the win. Following means we stop bargaining because it's not about outcomes, it's about devotion. So what's the root of integrity? It's that devotion. It's that God, you know, I'm, I'm to be in your presence, to be with you. Let, let's go back to verse nine of Nehemiah. Then I said, what are you doing? What you're doing isn't right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God and not invite the reproach of our foreign enemies? And he says the same thing in verse 15. Is there no fear of God there? Now, here's what you need to understand about the fear of God. Whenever you see the fear of God and people are, are, are I mean, they're shaking, they're, they're quaking in their boots, it's because they're aware of God's presence. When all of a sudden they become aware they're in the presence of God, people fear. When Jacob realizes he's been sleeping underneath his ladder, going back and forth to heaven, he's afraid. 
When Peter's in the boat and he realizes I'm in the boat in the presence of our Lord, and when he sees this great fish, he says, I'm in the presence of God. He starts shaking and bows down. He's afraid. All through the Bible, where you see people, when they understand they're in the presence of God, they fear. So you want to know what the root of integrity is? It's that realizing you're in the presence of God. What else would you do except the right thing? Somebody that has that such devotion, that, that understanding that they live out in the presence of God, of course they're going to do the right thing. They don't care what the consequences are. Not when you're in the presence of God. And so that's the, uh, the root of integrity. Now, if you don't have integrity, it's because you have another type of fear. See, there's a good fear, but there's also a bad fear. And that bad fear we call today FOMO. Fear of missing out. But if I do the right thing, I'm going to miss out on him. I'm going to miss out on her. I'm going to miss out on this. I'm going to miss out on that. But when you live as long as I have, you begin to look back and you realized that if you sacrifice your integrity, that leads to regret, leads to heartache, leads to pain. If integrity, you realize when you get older, if your integrity had guided you when you were 15, when you were 17, if you had let your integrity guide you, then you'd miss out on that heartache, that pain, that regret. Nobody my age looks back on their life and says, I wish I'd lived my life with less integrity. See, that's what you want in your world, right? The world, your family does not need more people in it who says, I'm just going to do what seems right to me and do the, what I think is the best thing and go on. We don't need more people like that. We need people who want to do the right thing. Have the courage to do what God wants them to do, the right thing, just because it's the right thing. Because it's what God wants them to do. So, Daniel had already won. Even before he was delivered from the lion's den. Because he did what he knew his heavenly father wanted him to do. He lived with integrity. He could live with integrity when he's 70 years old. Why? Because he did it when he was 15. He let integrity guide him his whole life. So do you need to become a Daniel or Danielle this morning or Nehemiah and begin living a life of integrity? You know where I see a lack of integrity? In, in, in doing what I do, I see a lack of integrity a lot of times when, when people are struggling with things and they come and share things that they're struggling with, you know, especially with guys. You know. Oh, every once in a while, here and there, you know, sometimes I look at the wrong thing on the internet and I'm going, no, you're in a dark place. It's got you. But you know, the people who find healing from that are the ones who just come to me and they vomit all their stuff. 
It's like they, they come in there and they go, rah, and all this junk's all over my desk and, and they, every dark part of their life and they just throw it all out there. And they say, anything else you want to know? I'll be glad. You tell me. I will tell you just the way it is. And I go, you know, there's hope for them. They have started on the way to healing. It may take them a while, but at least they've got the right start because they're integrity. They're not trying to pretend to be something that they're not. But those that come and they go, yeah, yeah, maybe a little, you know, and they just want to give a hint that, yeah, I suffer every once in a while. They're going to stay stuck. There's no integrity in their confession even. How are they going to begin that walk with God? So do you need to become a man or a woman of integrity? All I'm asking you to do is to do the right thing because it's the right thing. Leave the consequences to God. That's what somebody who walks in integrity does. Even when it costs, and especially when it costs. Because it was going to cost Daniel a lot. He knew what the consequences were. It was in the king's edict, thrown into the lion's den. Some of you, oh, your pride. What will people think? When your need to walk in integrity overcomes your fear of embarrassment, then you're on the right road. Till then, you're not willing to do the right thing just because it's the right thing, even when it costs, and especially when it costs. Okay. So you have a choice on what you want to do. God's calling us to live with integrity. Nehemiah ex- ex- and we're going to talk about this again next week, okay? This is just the first part. We'll talk some more about this next week. Uh, but this is, this is what needs to take place. There's got to be that honesty, that integrity in, in God's people before there's revival. Okay? They can't continue doing the wrong things. And, and the thing, the good part, let me, I don't want to leave you on a sour note, so let's look at the good part here real quick. Uh, what we read in, in the... In, Uh, Verse 13, they did it. They said, we've been doing the wrong thing. We're going to do the right thing. And they begin to rejoice and praise God. They they said, we have been people without integrity. We're going to start having the integrity. We're going to do what we know God wants us to do. And they did it. And it gets better. Because in a few chapters, which we're not, I'm not going to get to, we're not going to get to, but they get the wall rebuilt. And after they get the wall rebuilt, the people get rebuilt. That's when a revival happens. They change. The wall has been done. Now they come and say, God, if you can do this with the wall, what can you do in us? And they experience that revival. But don't skip over the brokenness, the prayer, the unity, the perseverance, the integrity. Folks, it doesn't just happen. You want to see God work? It doesn't just happen. You got to put in the spiritual energy to make it happen. And when I say you, I'm not saying the person next to you or the person behind you or the other person across the aisle from the church uh, or those, you know, back somewhere else. I said, no, you, if you don't take this personally, 
If you don't think that revival has to happen to you personally, how's it going to happen corporately? If everybody else says, oh, it's them, not me. I'm kind of okay. No, we're not. But it starts with this, doesn't start here, but this big step is that of integrity. Don't leave here this morning with your lack of integrity intact. Destroy it. Do what those Jewish leaders did. Have the, the ability to do what they say and say, you're right, we have been wrong and we're changing. We're giving them back what they owe us plus interest. Now tell me that didn't hurt. Oh, that hurt. This is where God wants us to be, okay. But what God can do with that is amazing. It's amazing. Thank you for tuning into the podcast of Grandview Baptist Church in Anchorage, Alaska. For more information, check out our website at gbcak.org.